Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be alive, to be breathing, uh, to be here right now, face to face with those who love you and appreciate you and your precious Son. Father, we ask right now that you also bless those who are sick that couldn't be here with us this morning that you comfort them and encourage them as to your plan for their life and that you bring them back to us soon so that we can fellowship together in unity of the faith as we're doing this morning. Father, we're, we're eternally grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent down out of heaven to become a man. You did something unthinkable and you sacrificed him in our place even though we were all totally guilty before you. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide the speaker and uh, help each of us listen and understand your personal message for us this morning. We need your help with that, Father, as you know. We ask that you humble us before you. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your Spirit. We pray. Amen. First off, I just want to thank Pastor again for the opportunity to uh, fill in for him behind uh, this God-ordained pulpit. Um, it's a privilege and an honor anytime you get the chance to teach the Word of God, especially to those that want to hear it. You know, what, a, what an awesome privilege to be used in any way by God. So I'm very appreciative and... Uh, Please continue to keep pastoring your prayer as he returns. We're nothing more than vessels of mercy, part four. And this morning I'm going to say sit back and relax at least for the first half because we have over 30 slides this morning. And that's a lot. At an average it might be 15 or 20. So just sit back. Some of this is review from this week. Some important points that came up and the Spirit's given us a few more. And... Um, then we'll, we'll get into more scriptures towards the second half of the lesson. So some of you are like, yay, I don't have to turn in my Bibles everywhere. Some of you are like, hey, I don't have to turn in my Bibles. What's up, what's up with that? But it's all good. And this is what the Spirit has for us this morning. So on Thursday, we began with an analogy that I want to repeat for us all this morning. And hopefully this helps us see what the Spirit is doing for us right now through this topic. God has been taking us to the ground floor, reminding us of where we came from. And how else will we realize in our hearts that we're nothing more than vessels of mercy unless He does this thing that He's doing? So picture yourself, first off, in a high-rise the penthouse that you've been promoted to because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a true reality for those that have placed their trust in Him as Lord and Savior. But every once in a while, the Lord wants to remind us where we came from. And this is what Bible scholars call total depravity. 
So the Spirit of Jesus has asked us to get in the elevator and take it down from the penthouse to the basement. And as we talked about on Thursday, it's one of those really creepy basements that other people don't even know is there, if you know what I mean. And it's like the elevator doesn't even have a button that goes down there. Only Jesus and you know where that secret button is. And that's where he wants to take you down to. So you reach the very bottom and get off the elevator. And you see nothing but shadows and darkness. And the smells are just horrible. And you see signs of your past wretched decisions and all the skeletons in your closet. This is a place of incredible darkness and and shadows and sadness that we don't want to go back to. Memories of ourselves being trapped in deception and evil. All we usually have to do is remember the days of our youth and how lost we were without Christ. So right now, on the board, regarding our wretched basements. His Spirit is reminding us of our own horribleness that He saved us from. Even of the good we did in the past, that was dressing up the pig in an attempt to earn God's favor. In essence, trying to fool God. That is also in your secret, disgusting basement. He's trying to get us to fully appreciate His mercy. And that through the cross, he saved us from a whole lot of wretchedness that we sometimes don't even admit. We're in denial of. I wasn't that bad, or I'm not as bad as that person, etc. But if we honestly look in the mirror like he's asking us to, and we think about the wretched things we did in our past, both good and bad, both sin and righteousness even, it should humble us to greater appreciate his mercy. And one day, the Lord's going to take us back up to that penthouse, even from the lessons from behind the pulpit. But right now, his spirit has us exploring our wretched basements some more. And this is good. On the board, this has been a key point this past week. Through Christ, worthless, evil vessels like ourselves have been brought into the fold. Not only did Christ bring us into the fold, but we were made brand new and made into something with eternal value. Ephesians 2.3, Galatians 6.15. And... The flesh takes exception to being called evil. Some of your flesh is right now cringed or resisted being called worthless and evil, as it says on the board. But remember, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father, right? But Jesus called us evil in Matthew 7, 11. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to continue to resist? Or will you bow down in submission and admit your evil? Your utter wretchedness without Christ. 
fallen man being born in sin is left with no hope of escape. And that's God's perspective about man according to his word. And as we were reminded this week, this is about his perspective. It's his perspective that matters. What value is our perspective? What good is our perspective? So you disagree with God. How far are you going to get with that? Let's humble ourselves and embrace his perspective. This is God's perspective on the board. Not man's skewed opinion about himself that he's been trained to believe. And that's one reason we go to the word. To be set free from the lies that we've bought about man's own version of goodness. Even religion has taught us this. Man's own version of goodness. It's saturated our minds. Whether you realize it or not, it has saturated our minds like a sponge full of water. We've been trained this way, so we believe it. Because ever since we were really young, we've been taught it. We've been taught man can be good enough on his own. Um, Even through not just media, but through professionals and friends alike that tell us this. On the board, we've been deceived from childhood that we just aren't all that bad. And therefore, here's the dangerous consequence to that. We don't think we're fully dependent upon God's mercy. That's what God's trying to get us, to really believe this in our heart, that we're nothing without his mercy, and we're fully dependent on his mercy. But this takes time, and it takes a lot of prodding. You know, like the cattle prod, the electric shock (laughs) that they give the cattle, I guess, to get it moving? It takes a lot of prodding, because we've been deceived since childhood to think that there's something good about us. We're not all that bad. We think that there's an in-between, in other words, where we have a part in it. Even certain churches that we grew up in taught us that from youth. So now it's embedded or saturated in our minds. Scott and I watched a sci-fi movie on Friday night, and it's amazing how so many movies want to convince us that man has some goodness in himself. Do you see that common theme running through the movies? All these hero movies? Might be superheroes, might be you know, regular Joes, but always coming out on top in the end because there's goodness in man that triumphs in the end. Da-da-da. What is that all about? What's the message behind the entertainment? And it's okay to be entertained. It's okay to enjoy things like that. Just We still should be careful what we watch and listen to. But why is the world and Hollywood so intent on convincing us of this thing? That man can be good enough on his own. That man can correct all the wrongs in the universe. Man can right all the wrongs. There are evil men, but we can, you know, come back and do this thing ourselves. Why is that a common theme in movies, for example? Is it possible that it's so that we think 
we don't have to look up and turn to God and ask for mercy because we think we're good enough on our own and we're not full of sin? What do you think? Is this the devil's world or not? What do you think Satan's scheme is? That's one of his major schemes. He's doing a really good job of convincing people that they don't need to trust in God to save them, but that they can trust in themselves. He's doing a phenomenal job. So anytime we watch media, we should, we should not be totally um, naive, but instead be like, what's the message within that's being promoted here? Be careful, because it can get to you as a believer, too. On the board, here's a quote from a book by a man named A.W. Pink called The Total Depravity of Man. And by the way, this book is on our church website. It's on pastor's recommended reading list. So if you're wondering what book to read on the side, obviously the Bible should be your first priority by now. But if you want a book to read that's good on the side, you know pastor's read these books and approves of them as uh, biblical. So, again, this book, The Total Depravity of Man by A.W. Pink, he says, Divisions and discords, hatred and bloodshed, cannot be banished while human nature is what it is. Man's trying to banish these things on his own, right? And why does it keep getting worse instead of getting better, even with the efforts of man? Divisions and discords... Hatred and bloodshed cannot be banished while human nature is what it is. It just is. We're wretched, depraved. One day we want to do good, the next day we cheat on the side. Or we devise evil schemes. Next day we, we'd be good, the next day we go be evil. And he continues to say, But during the past century, the steady trend of a deteriorating Christendom has been to underrate the evil of sin and overrate the moral capabilities of men. That's why we're on this subject, that we're nothing more than vessels of mercy. Notice what he said, the steady trend of a deteriorating Christendom has been to underrate the evil of sin and to overrate the moral capabilities of men. And this man, Pink, wrote this in the early 1900s. He was already seeing the trend towards this big mistake. The message coming from within many churches is that man can be good on his own. And that's in direct contrast to the Word of God. Turn again in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Even in churches, pastors are underrating the evil of sin, maybe not even paying attention to it, and overrating the moral capabilities of men. What does that do? It pushes Christ to the side. It's like, I don't really need him. He's there when I need him. I don't really need him all the time. I don't really need God's mercy because, you know what? I'm doing a pretty good job on my own. I'm better than most, etc., that's coming from churches. So Ephesians 2.1 reminds us, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. On the board, we were born in sin of the flesh, but now if you've placed your trust in Christ, you're born again of the Spirit. Hallelujah, right? Thank God. John chapter 3. But what's the point of this on the board? We couldn't be fixed. Unfixable. God's like, this is so wretched, don't even try to fix the old one. I need to make you brand new. It's the only way you can live with me forever. And you have to have Christ's righteousness. You can't have your own. That's the only way you can live with me forever. Because heaven's a place of perfect righteousness and purity and holiness and no sin and no evil. So you need me to change you by grace and by mercy. And we're encouraged as we go forward to see God's solution to our situation of death. Look at verse 4, Ephesians 2.4. So even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, there's our subject, God's rich in mercy, oh my God, so rich in mercy, overflowing in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As we go forward living our lives under the umbrella of God's mercy, if you will, the Spirit's been asking us to examine our motivations. And he's been convincing us this week that we must never confuse goodness in our lives as belonging to ourselves. So on the board, we are nothing without the Lord. To accept this is to be free, set free by it, knowing it does not depend upon us, but upon God who is merciful. Thank God. That phrase in the bold there comes from Romans chapter 9, as we will see. Knowing it does not depend upon God, but upon us, but upon God who is merciful. Instead of propping up self, we should be bowed low at the foot of the cross, knowing our total depravity. So to accept this truth on the board gives us freedom from the chains of self-righteousness. He's trying to set us free from ourselves. We walk around under the bondage of self-righteousness, putting it on ourselves that we have to do something to earn our way. And we're literally walking around in chains. And even as a believer, we can do this, as we've seen from the Galatians. God doesn't want us to do this. He's like, will you live in my love? Will you live in the victory I've given you in Christ? Will you live under my mercy and stop holding on to your own thoughts. And an important point came out this week on the board, including our obedience 
We can't even take credit for our obedience when we obey God. Our obedience, if it's godly, has nothing to do with self. It has to do with gratitude for the Lord. In fact, it's getting self out of the way and listening to the Spirit and the Word. It's living in the new creature, not working on the old. It's living in the new creature, not working on the old. That's obedience. How can you take credit for that? If only the new creature can do good that God accepts, and God gave you the new creature in Christ. How can you take any credit for the obedience? The Galatians got deceived into working on the old creature. They were trying to improve the flesh even after salvation. We saw this on the board in Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We need to ask ourselves that too. Is this you? If God saved us by grace through faith, then why do we go forward in life trying to impress God with our flesh? As though it's by works. Why do we do that? Am I the only one? I've been guilty way too long of this when I examine my own motivations, which can be very subtle and sneaky. If God saved us by grace through faith, then why do we go forward in life trying to impress God with our flesh as though it's by works? And here's a very important question. Is it because we don't believe God's love for us? Do we strive in the flesh? Do we do what the Galatians did? Do we try to be perfected in the flesh because we don't believe God's love for us? We don't believe he um, completely saved us by his mercy alone. We believe he requires something of us, maybe. I just recently came to a point where I realize and accept that God loves me no matter what. For who I am. Including knowing all my weaknesses. Alice and Anthony and I were talking about this before class this morning. I just recently came to this point that Jesus loved me and saved me despite all my ugly weaknesses. Like in the face of those things. You know what I mean? After uh, years of propping up my flesh because I didn't really believe this. I didn't really believe God's love for me. I knew it was academically correct, biblically, but I didn't believe it in my heart. And that's possibly one reason we try to perfect the flesh. Just something to think about. Again, on the board, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, what does that mean? The Spirit saved you by grace, through faith, not by works. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We each have to ask ourselves that question. Why do we try to make ourselves look good when our self is dead and wretched in God's eyes. And here's another thing we talked about this morning. Why are you so easily able to tell another person that God loves them and God is gracious towards them, but you can't say that to yourself or about yourself? Anyone agree?
Why is that? Because we're so self-focused. And we think we can improve self, or we have to. Or we don't believe God's love for us. So the more we understand the flesh, and this is part of the flesh, trying to buy in, trying to um, not buy in, but get a piece of the action, get a piece of the credit. The more we understand the flesh from a biblical point of view and its wretchedness and depravity, the more we can and have to rely on the mercy of God. And that's the only place that's going to set us free. As God designed us to be set free through Christ. So let's remember on the board, the flesh is schizophrenic. It just is. Despite its desire to sin and rebel, it also wants to put on a good show and appear good to God and man. What else can you call that? Galatians 6, 12a. We've seen that. This is part of the mystery of our wretchedness. This proves how wretched we really are. Despite the flesh's desire to sin and rebel, it also wants to put on a good show and appear good. Put on an avatar. You know, earn some points. And all these things and everything in between are in the filthy, disgusting basement that we're looking at right now that God is graciously reminding us of where we came from. In fact, what we are each capable of, given the right circumstances, would shock us because of our arrogance. We shouldn't be shocked, but we're so arrogant and prideful that we're shocked. I would never do that. If you were put in the right circumstances, you'd be shocked what you'd do. You'd be shocked. Why? Why are we capable of evil? Because our flesh is fallen. Our flesh is fallen from Adam. Wretched. Uncapable on its own to do something godly. It's desperately sick and without hope on its own. So the Spirit gave us these examples. You don't believe me? You don't believe the flesh is evil? You don't believe the flesh is schizophrenic? All right, how about this? Now, I don't know about you, but I can say I've done all three of these things Several times in my life. I can't even count how many, probably. The flesh is schizophrenic. How else can you explain, except for our fallen sinful nature, how man can be judgmental and yet do the same things he's judging others for? Sometimes the very next day. Amen? Give me an amen, somebody. Come on, admit it. Admit it. How about this next one? How else can you explain how man can gossip about someone? Have you ever said something like, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they did that? Right? Our flesh loves to gossip. Loves it. How else can you explain how you can gossip about someone and also help them in the area that you're criticizing? Maybe even the very next day. These things are are wretchedness. This is wretched in God's eyes. It's part of the mystery of iniquity. And we shouldn't just think of murder and adultery and things like that, but also all the self-righteous sins as well, some of which are on the board. For example, how else can you explain? Oh, I think I missed one, didn't I? 
I said them backwards, oh well. This one was, how else can you explain how someone can show love to someone and also steal from the same person? Hmm. Yeah, no, none of you, right? Yeah, sure. And then gossip about someone and help them in that same area. What's wrong with you? You're judging them. What's wrong with you? Look at you. <laughs> How do you explain this? You know what it is on the board? The flesh lives in the sphere of death. That's where the flesh abides with no hope of fixing itself. It's disgusting, wretched, foolish, unexplainable, the things we do or think or say. The flesh lives in the sphere of death with no hope of fixing itself. And until you believe that in your own heart, you won't appreciate the glory of God's mercy towards you. You can't go halfway and be set free. You can't hold on to the flesh and remnants of its own goodness and be set free. Until you believe this on the board, that the flesh lives in the sphere of death, until you believe that in your own heart, you won't appreciate the glory of God's mercy in your life. The flesh is evil, including all its attempts at goodness without God. We also took a lesson from Agur's prayer because the flesh is constantly pecking at us and tempting us to take credit. So in Proverbs 31 through 9, do we actively pray for protection from ourselves? Aware of the constant temptation to rely on the flesh. If not today, tomorrow. Are you always praying for protection? You should be. What does the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 say? Lord, give us our, uh, give us our daily bread and protect me from temptation, Father. Deliver us from evil. Very wise prayer, obviously, from the Lord's mouth as a great example. So on the board, let the love of God fuel you to be humble and want to learn more of his perspective. God loves us so much. It's, it's ungraspable, really, but he'll show us as we humble ourselves more before him. Allow the love of God to fuel you to be humble and want to learn more of his perspective. Don't, when, when you realize someone really loves you or does something great for you, don't you want to please them more? So the problem goes back to faith. It goes back to believing the love God has for us. He loves you just the way you are. He didn't ask you to improve yourself before he loved you. He loves you even with all your ugly weaknesses that you still hate about yourself. But he loves you regardless of that. In the face of that, Jesus loved you. So again, on the board, let the love of God fuel you to be humble and want to learn more of his perspective, which includes this perspective about the flesh. Here's another point the Spirit's been emphasizing this week. To the degree we admit our ugliness and depravity without the Lord, that's the degree to which freedom will be experienced in our lives. 
and we'll be set free. Because even though we're in horror, as we look at our total depravity, we're in awe of God's mercy towards us all the more. How could you have loved me in the face of these things? And that's why Paul loved the Lord so much. He knew how wretched he was. Again, to the degree we admit our ugliness and depravity without the Lord, that's the degree to which freedom will be experienced in our lives. As we talked about on Tuesday, the greater the depth of the pit we were in, the greater we appreciate our rescue. And there's no greater pit that anyone's ever been rescued from than the pit of hell. Our Lord has rescued us from the infinitely deep pit of hell, from eternal death. We should be infinitely more grateful than for any blessing in this life. We were locked up in that filthy, pitch-dark, wretched basement, in a cage, in chains, with no way out. That's how impossible our position was, don't you remember? Trapped in hopelessness, maybe even suicidal. Trapped in hopelessness. That's what he saved us from, once and for all. Here's a quote worth sharing also from Mr. Pink, from The Total Depravity of Man. Until we really behold the horror of the pit in which by nature we lie, we can never properly appreciate Christ's so great salvation. That's why this is good. It's good to be brought to your knees. It's good to weep before the Lord and be in awe of the wretchedness that he stared at while he said, I love you. The sins that he took upon his own body while he said, Father, forgive them. Until we really behold the horror of the pit in which by nature we lie. Remember, by nature, uh, children of wrath in Ephesians 2. Until we really behold that, we can never properly appreciate Christ's so great salvation. And only Jesus had the key to your wretched basement. But he had to shed his blood to get it. And we must never, ever, ever forget that. So what's our conclusion? You saved a wretch like me. All the glory and honor has to go to our God and Savior. There's no room for self-righteousness. When you think about it in these terms, self-righteousness is so foolish, isn't it? It's like so ridiculous. But we might go out there today and fall into it. Like Paul said in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. He was talking about doing the things he didn't want to do and not doing the things he wanted to do. And he said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? He says, thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. But this illustrates our battle, even as believers. And then we saw Revelation 3, 17, which was written to a church. And Jesus said to them, because you say, 
I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Things could be going great. <laughs> and you get deceived by things going great in your life, so to speak. Whether it's money or success or relationships or whatever it is. And you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, you're wretched. Open your eyes. The simple, repetitive, but supremely important point this week has been that we are 100% vessels of His mercy, and that's it. There's no contribution man can make without the power of Christ. And man can fool himself all he wants. He can practice religion all he wants, which always persuades man to earn his way with God somehow. But it's all dung in God's eyes, as we saw this week. But just in case you missed it, I wouldn't want any of you to miss this point on the board. Many a man is tricked into believing his own goodness is good enough, when without God it's just excrement covered by a layer of powdered sugar. Picture it. Let it sink in, because that, my friends, is man's goodness without the Lord, not his sin. Man's goodness without the Lord. That's what we try to do to the Lord, like we're going to fake him out. Excrement covered by a layer of powdered sugar. Philippians 3.8, Isaiah 64.6 teaches these principles. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. Don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. Satan is trying his best through the world and through the world's ways to deceive us to think our own goodness is good enough. But we want God's perspective. I want the truth, right? Look what Paul said about all of his good accomplishments without Christ. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. The Greek word there for rubbish really is dung. I count them all dung, so that I may gain Christ. Ask yourself a question. Is that your attitude, honestly? Is that your attitude about all the good things that you've accomplished in the past without Christ? The Spirit's telling us to test our hearts. That's the righteous attitude that we, sh we should have. It's all dung, even the good things we've accomplished without knowing Christ. So we shouldn't look back on our successes of the past, especially without Christ. We shouldn't look back on those with glory in our minds. Oh, yeah, I did that. That was good. You know, or I was better in that area. I, I achieved in that area. We shouldn't have, give that any value. Paul calls it dung. Disgusting. 
And remember, of course, what Scripture says about our righteousness in Isaiah 64, 6 on the board, the American Standard Version. For we are all become as one that is unclean, and all our righteousnesses are a polluted garment. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All of man's righteousness without relying on the Lord is gross in God's eyes. And your flesh might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. You might tell people this on the street. You know, the Bible says your righteousness is disgusting in God's eyes. And the person might say to you, well, that doesn't seem fair. I'm trying my best. Yeah, that's the problem. You're deceived into thinking something you do can please perfect God. And the Spirit gave us an analogy on Tuesday to show us why. Why is it that our righteousness is disgusting in God's eyes on the board? Because it's polluted by sin, basically. Regarding man's polluted righteousness, it's like adding just one small piece of dung to a gallon of pure spring water. It's now tainted, right? You're not going to drink it. That's what sin does to man's righteousness. You could have a whole gallon full of your righteousness, your good deeds. But because sin is in it, it's all disgusting in God's eyes. We turn a blind eye. I don't see any dung in the water. Look at all my good deeds. What's God's perspective? How does God see it? So you expect God to accept your righteous deeds when God sees it as all tainted by sin? It's no longer drinkable. That's why God is disgusted with man's righteous deeds. Because it's all coming from a place of sin. And we need to explain this to unbelievers as well. To wake them up. So they get it. You could try to be good all you want. It's not ever, 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 ever going to be good enough. Because sin has tainted everything you do. Including the good. That's God's viewpoint on life. And on the flesh. And again, until we accept this and believe this about ourselves personally, we won't be set free. On the board, each of us in our own souls need to reckon that there's nothing good about ourselves without Christ. Otherwise, we're being deceived by a form of religion. Even a religion we make up in our head to try to appease God on our own. And we're basically taking glory away from God. Because what's God's glory? His mercy. What's God's glory? His mercy. According to Moses, or when Moses asked, that's what God said. You're taken away from the glory of God's mercy. Are you? As we've heard a lot over the years recently, only the Lord can make something totally useless useful. Only the Lord can make something totally useless useful. And were it not for his mercy, you and I would still be unuseful, despite our best efforts. Unuseful. So here's an exercise the Spirit gave us on Thursday. Complete this sentence in your soul. Were it not for the Lord's mercy towards me, 
What do you say about that? Were it not for the Lord's mercy towards me, what would have happened? Where would you be right now? If you're honest, this has to bring you low and humble you. But that is a divinely good place to be. Jesus said, blessed are the lowly. On the board, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is good. This whole exercise we're doing this week is good because God can use the humble. He's not going to use the arrogant. They have to be willing. But the humble are willing. And he can use us as a vessel of honor, which the scripture also talks about, because we're willing and pliable. We have the attitude of, I know I'm nothing without you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy, whatever you want me to do. That's our overall attitude if we're humble. We're not perfect, but the Lord can make us useful of divine good to him. Amazing. So let's get some context again as we read the main passage where we're specifically called vessels of mercy. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 9, verse 6. Romans 9, verse 6. going to spend some time here, so make sure you get there. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Just look at that for a minute. Okay? Children of the flesh. People that rely on the flesh to please God. They're not the children of God, but the children of the promise, the ones who believe God's promise about salvation through Christ, through the blood of Christ, they're descendants. They're saved. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, it does not depend on the man who wills, or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. As we talked about on Thursday, if God decided not to have mercy on us, 
That's it. It's decided. It's done. There's no hope. There's nothing we can do about it. If God decided to not have mercy on us, then it's done. There's nothing man can do about it. The point is, our salvation was fully dependent, 100%, on God's mercy reaching down to us. Again, verse 16. It doesn't depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's the point of this series. On the board. We are nothing more than vessels of his tender mercy and of his wonderful compassion. And wonderful it is when you look at how wretched we are. Romans 9, 15 and 16. So there's no room for any other options or plans or rationalizations by man. When nothing more than vessels of his tender mercy and of his wonderful compassion. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who, her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, burned up as vessels of wrath. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, in other words, by the flesh, they did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. There we see the battle between the flesh and the spirit as well. But on the board, were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. In kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ. Romans 9, 22, and 23. Again, were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. However, in kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ. And we're nothing more than that. And before you say, yeah, but I'm the one who believed in Christ. I made that good decision. Do you really want to go there? Who's the one who graciously set up the plan this way? Who's the one who called you and woke you up regarding your sinfulness before God? And who's the one who gave you the faith to even believe? So once again, without God's mercy reaching down to us, we would be stuck in death for all eternity, in that wretched basement, in chains, behind bars, in utter darkness, with zero hope, with zero light. But his mercy opened the door. He shed his blood for us and he got the key. And he sets us free. Wholly dependent upon his mercy, isn't it? So let's focus on the part of this passage that talks about the vessels of mercy. As we begin to close, look at Romans 9.14. Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So if we're honest, when we read passages like this, we have to admit we are totally 100% in God's hands. Our lives are totally 100% in his hands. Right? And thank God they're gracious hands of mercy. God didn't have to turn out to be a gracious God, if you know what I mean, from our point of view. I mean, that's who he is. But from our point of view, he could have been a God of wrath, alone. And we literally have zero hope. So on the board, we're mercy dependent. 
And this is good because God's a good God. We can rely on His mercy. And we should, solely. Thank God He is good, reaching down to the lowly to reveal the riches of His glory. What are the riches of His glory? Not that He owns everything, not that He created the universe, not that He's all-powerful. It's that He's merciful. That someone all-powerful can be love and have mercy on the guilty. That's the riches of His glory. And thank God that He's willing to take sinful, evil men like us, selfish, prideful, judgmental, immoral, etc., etc., etc. And He makes us wretches into sons of the living God. Who gets the glory for that? When Satan and the fallen angels are looking at the end of time, they can point to one person for the reason that we wretches are in heaven. They can only point to the mercy of God taking wretches and making them into sons of the living God. That's absurd. But that's who we are in Christ. And that's how awesome God's mercy is. And that's how dependent on God's mercy we are. All the glory has to, has to go to God. So let's live like it. You know what I mean? Instead of taking some glory and being self-righteous and et cetera, et cetera, you know, bring the flesh into the picture as we, as we go forward in life as a believer, let's live like it. I don't know about you, but I'm totally dependent on the mercy of God. And therein lies freedom. So to come to a point now where we give him his full due, I want to share something with you. The Spirit wants me to share with you. Recently in my life, I was humiliated by a certain situation. But I can honestly say I'm grateful for it. God helped me stop living like an avatar. And it burned away some of my pride and arrogance. I do say some. I apologize in advance for when I treat you in arrogance. But it did burn away some of my pride and arrogance. And did it hurt? It sure did. Was it good? It was very good. God has increased my humility through a humiliating circumstance. And what man meant for evil, God turned into good for me. He even did it in the same day, even in my soul. Now, what credit can I take for that? What credit can I take for God's mercy? I was down and out. I was put in a position where I was totally in the, ha the hands of merciful God. And it was wonderful to be brought down low so that he and he alone could lift me up. And he did. So don't ask me for any details. Isn't what I told you enough? So back to our series. Quickly. Turn in your Bible somewhere. What does it really mean to be a vessel of mercy? 
First of all, we see from context in Romans 9 that a vessel speaks of a creation of God. In this case, illustrated by a lump of clay being made into a piece of pottery. So on the board, being mercy dependent, God makes each creation of his for certain purposes that will ultimately bring him glory. And we are nothing more than vessels at the mercy of the potter's hands. Amen? That is literally how fragile and hopeless we are without his merciful hands. And the word mercy in the Greek refers to compassion. God chose by his sovereign grace to transform us vessels of wrath that he deserved, we deserve to be stepped on, crushed. And by mercy, he decided to take vessels of wrath and change them into vessels of mercy. He had compassion on us even though we engaged in sin and rebellion against him. So let's close with this example. I want you to think of a judge in a courtroom. The judge has the final say, correct? It depends on the letter of the law in that location, but let's just say the jury has already found you guilty. You said your piece, even. You even took the stand and argued for your own innocence. Now the trial is over, and the jury decided you are guilty. But now, the sentencing is up to the judge alone and his wisdom. You are totally, right now, in the hands of the judge. What happens to the rest of your life, and in our case, the rest of eternity, is totally his call, and you can do nothing about it. How helpless, right? So what's your only recourse? What's your only recourse in that situation? Is it not to throw yourself upon the mercy of the court? There's no more rationalization. There's no more arguing. You've already been convicted. Is not your only recourse to throw yourself on the mercy of the judge? And that, of course, is a picture of all of us as sinners before holy God. All one can do is bow down and pray for mercy, like the humble tax collector did in Luke 18. And so, if we have the right perspective, we can do nothing but be overwhelmed at God's kindness and compassion for us. We can do nothing but live a life of thankfulness as he plucked us out of the fire, as in Zechariah 3. And he made us new creatures, vessels of mercy, by granting us faith in his Son. Amen? What more should we ever consider ourselves than vessels of mercy? It's utter foolishness. And the more we accept that, accept that we're totally in God's hands, the more we'll be set free and live like it, as Christ died for us to live in freedom. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we're eternally grateful 
thank you that you are merciful and that you are love. Uh, We thank you that salvation doesn't depend on us whatsoever, but upon your mercy. You're even the one that gives us faith to believe in your precious Son. Father, we ask that you help us commit these things to our own soul, our own heart, that we believe them with our whole hearts, that we're nothing more than vessels of mercy. Even though we deserve to be crushed, you treat us in kindness. And we rejoice, Father, that that is your glory. That is the riches of your glory. Your incredible mercy. Father, we ask that you help us share this truth with people in this world that are lost and need the hope that only you can provide. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you.